Hey everybody, welcome back and thanks for your patience. Uh, I know it's been probably two months since I've recorded anything. I took on a new project at work and have been pretty darn busy with that. I did start to record a project on uh, everything happening in Afghanistan, but that ended up going down some side streets and I started doing some pretty deep research. It turned into a pretty big project. Uh, and in addition to that, I wanted to make sure that uh, I gave it some space and that things in there aren't too emotional of a response. I really enjoyed doing the deep dive into the paper Unrestricted Warfare in my last podcast. Uh, it was one of the most enjoyable for me. Hopefully it was one of the most informational for my listeners out there. Uh, but I'll probably start doing some more of those. Uh, but they take a while, and I have a full-time job and a part-time job on the side, so I'm going to try to get in the habit of doing some of these uh, off-the-cuff, opinionated ones that I've done in the past, more philosophical flavor, quick, you know, 15 minutes, my thoughts on this subject, uh, in between to keep content coming out at a more steady pace, but allow me to have the time to deeply research some of these other subjects and uh, hopefully someday I have more time to spend on this and more resources where I can bring in guests, uh, have conversations, and also deep dive more of these subjects and, and really give them the attention that they deserve and do some more of the ones like the one I did on Unrestricted Warfare and other subjects like that that really interest me. So if you're still with me, thanks for your patience and... Uh, Please bear with me while I knock off the rust since I haven't been on the mic for a while. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about seemingly selfless acts and rational self-interest. This is a subject that's super fascinating to me. Uh, this is born of me just thinking in the shower about 20 minutes ago. Uh, so we'll see how this turns out. But this is a subject that I think about a lot. I've mentioned before that I call myself an objectivist with a lowercase o. So somebody who believes in the general principles of objectivism, but is not convinced that anyone has a monopoly on objective reality and truth, and therefore every conclusion that Ayn Rand, the founder of objectivism, has drawn is not necessarily the truth just because she was the founder of the objectivist philosophy. And so if I'm going to invoke such a controversial character as Rand, let's address the elephant in the room. Let's talk about Rand, let's talk about her detractors, let's talk about her followers first, since she is a pretty controversial character known for touting the virtue of selfishness. And it's terms like that, the virtue of selfishness, that really had a lot of, and still has, a lot of academics and politically minded people in the modern era against Rand. Uh, they have a visceral reaction. And so her ideas often don't get the consideration that they might or that many feel that they deserve. Personally, I think that the blame for that lack of due consideration lies on both sides, both with her detractors and with her personality and her followers. Starting with the detractors, there's the obvious criticism that permeates all areas of discussion these days. They hear something they don't like, selfishness, they have a gut response, and then they refuse to look into it further, consider the ideas, or research uh, rational self-interest in any way. They identify an enemy and decide that the enemy cannot be given any consideration. As I've said before, instead of engaging in intellectual sparring that sharpens both sides, 
and hopefully lets the best and truest emerge, uh, they engage in intellectual warfare, trying to snuff out the enemy without ever considering the other side. On the other side of that, you can lay a lot of blame on the objectivist presentation of their arguments. Rand was an extremely abrasive character, and so are many of her followers, to the point where meeting many of her followers seems like meeting an internet troll in real life. While Rand expounded upon nuanced ideas like rational self-interest at length in her writings, that wasn't the public image that she put forward. She was known for brief abrasive statements like the virtue of selfishness. She often seemed irritated at the need to explain her philosophy, and that was likely because she was. She was irritated at even having to be a philosopher. Rand saw herself as an artist, as a romantic novelist, not as a philosopher. I've studied Rand at great length, uh, even down to the point of reading transcripts of question and answer sessions with students, uh, but it's been a number of years since then, so for the true diehards out there, please forgive me if I get this story wrong. But as I recall her telling it in one story, Rand was talking to a friend and frustrated that people didn't seem to truly understand her romantic novels. And a big piece of that had to do with the fact that Americans had a great sense of life. We seemed to believe in freedom and liberty and things like that intuitively, but we had a broken philosophy. We lived by bromides. We couldn't really think deeply about philosophical topics. So this friend suggested, why don't you write a book about philosophy, specifically about your philosophy, educate people on these subjects, and explain to them where you're coming from in these romantic novels. And that response really frustrated Rand. She didn't see it as her job to educate the rest of us on philosophy. That was the job of philosophers. She was an artist. She just expected to have an educated audience who could understand and interpret her art. In the beginning, I think that's probably part of what attracted so many to her was that role as a reluctant leader with great thoughts. Uh, by the end of her life, she would fully embrace the role of philosopher and thought leader, but hold on to that distaste uh, and abrasive personality when it came to feeling frustrated that she had to spend her whole life explaining herself or more accurately, explaining the universe as she saw it. One of the other things that makes the conversation about selfless acts or seemingly selfless, act, selfless acts and rational self-interest a non-starter uh, is the fact that people like Rand see the universe as a place that has no contradictions. There can be no contradictions. This belief that truth exists and therefore contradictions cannot leads to a refusal to even meet in the middle on language and acknowledge that some selfless acts can be good. And here's where we come to my personal beliefs. Personally, I believe in rational self-interest. I believe that it is the best guide for all human beings. Uh, and I believe that many, many of the acts that we call selfless probably most of the acts that we call selfless, are virtuous. They're merely mislabeled. And here I somewhat align with Rand in that I think that Americans in general have a pretty good instinct or sense of what is virtuous 
but we don't spend a lot of time deeply examining what drives virtue and the philosophy and the specific language of virtue. So let's start by asking the question, what is virtuous about selflessness? When I really try to think about it, just selflessness, I can think of many, many, many seemingly selfless acts that are virtuous, but when I ask myself what is virtuous about the selflessness itself, I can't come up with anything. It seems that from a young age, we're told that merely being selfless is virtuous and that that is somehow the source of virtue. So let's examine that as our premise and see where it takes us. I struggle to find any fundamental virtue in mere selflessness. I think the idea that just being selfless uh, and putting yourself last is somehow virtuous comes from an old school self-flagellation type of philosophy. Consider this admittedly ridiculous, highly unlikely scenario that nevertheless holds all the tenets that we're talking about. Let's say that you are an individual who enjoys your life, you like living, and you want to continue living your life, uh, but you know somebody who has this sadistic desire to watch people suffer uh, or die, or they have some sick desire like that, and it brings them some short-term temporary joy. Is it virtuous for you to jump off a bridge just to bring a fleeting smile to their face because that act was itself selfless? Clearly not. We all see that story instinctively as immoral, not moral. So to me, thought experiments like that should beg the question, what is it that does make all of these seemingly selfless acts virtuous? It doesn't seem to be the selflessness in and of itself. There seems to be some other element that we should continue digging for. And I think that's a problem. We don't keep digging for that element to see what is the source of virtue in these difficult, seemingly selfless tasks. So to do that, let's examine a real-world example, not just some thought experiment. A recent Medal of Honor winner, Alwyn Cash. And I choose this one because it was so damn powerful for me, and I had such a strong emotional reaction. When I came across the article announcing there would be a new Medal of Honor, and I read the citation, I almost broke down in tears from the display of love uh, within this act. In 2005, while serving in Iraq, Sergeant Cash's vehicle was struck by a roadside bomb. Cash was able to escape the gunner's hatch, but was soaked in fuel. Reading from the original Silver Star citation, Without regard for his personal safety, he rushed to the back of the vehicle, reached into the hot flames, and started pulling out his soldiers. The flames gripped his fuel-soaked uniform. Flames quickly spread all over his body. Despite being on fire, Sergeant Cash continued to pull others from the vehicle, ultimately saving six lives. One of the medics who treated Cash in country says that he kept insisting that he's fine and that they needed to treat his fellow soldiers. Sergeant Cash would later die in a hospital stateside with burns all over his body, but his sister says that when he was able to speak, his first words in the hospital were, How are my boys? I couldn't get to them fast enough. Now, let's ask ourselves, what is it about Sergeant Cash's story that is so powerful and that resonates so much that I just had to get up and take a break from recording for a little while before coming back to this. 
what is at the root of that instant recognition of virtue there? For me, it's more than the act. It's the reasons behind the act. It's easy to say that you love someone or that you have a brotherhood or that you're closer than family. While I'm sure that Sergeant Cash's actions were not meant for you and I, what you and I get from this is an example that proves that love exists in this world on such a deep level that someone would give up their life for just the chance to preserve those that they love. And for me, love is not a selfless act. Uh, When we love people, we may attempt to give in seemingly selfless ways from time to time. But when you truly love people the way that Sergeant Cash loved his fellow soldiers, there's nothing that you can give that is more valuable than that love and that bond. And yet we still recognize these things as good. And so maybe it's not the mere selflessness that drives virtue or recognition of virtue. Maybe it's depth of love, passion, and strength of character that we're recognizing. I have a somewhat silly example from pop culture that I think sums things up nicely Uh, But it seems disrespectful to put a silly example next to the story of Sergeant Cash. So I'll talk about some personal experience here to create some space. And then uh, we'll go into that and hopefully wrap things up nicely. An awkward moment for me, and I think most veterans, is when people say, thank you for your service. It's not that I don't appreciate the sentiment. I do. And I'm certainly not suggesting that anyone stop saying thank you for your service to veterans. Appreciation is always better than not being appreciated, and I certainly am not smart enough to think of a better phrase to show appreciation. With that said, when people thank me for my service, I feel awkward and silly for two reasons. The first is my service wasn't that impressive. So thanking me is completely unnecessary. The second reason is, I served for completely selfish reasons, and by that I don't mean I served to get college paid for, I didn't ever plan on going to college, or to get a paycheck, I certainly could have made more money in the civilian world. I joined the army because I love this messy, crazy, wild freedom that we know as Americans, and I wanted to preserve it at all costs, for myself and for the people that I love. I did it because I love my fellow countrymen who are on this wild journey with me. I did it because I don't want to live in a world without freedom and good, innocent people. And for all the reasons that I love my family, my neighbors, and my fellow countrymen. And once I was in, I got far more from my experience than the army could ever take from me. The bond of true brotherhood, personal growth, the greatest life lessons you could ever receive, and an opportunity to work with and walk among my personal heroes and learn from them on a daily basis. I think we often think of our military service members and veterans as one-dimensional characters. They're either the martyr, making a one-dimensional sacrifice in our name, or they're the poor soul with no other opportunities, stuck doing the dirty work that we know is necessary but no one else wants to do. But I can tell you that's not the case. I myself walked away from a full-ride scholarship with room and board and a stipend to enlist in the Army. 
and I was one of the dumbest people that I served with. I served with former physicists, MBAs, and a myriad of other graduate degrees, as well as future doctors and lawyers and leaders of this country. Again, I'm not saying to stop thanking service members and veterans for their service. All I'm saying is next time you do say thank you for your service, don't just say it out of a one-dimensional respect and reverence for their sacrifice. Take a moment to pause and think about all of the beautiful things that led them down the path that they're on in life. Consider the passion they must have for this crazy thing we call freedom and the depth of love that they must have for their fellow service members. Don't look at your shoes and feel indebted when you say it. Smile, look them in the eyes, and feel inspired. All right, hopefully that's enough space for me to make a smooth transition without feeling disrespectful to this uh, silly example of why I think rational self-interest is actually superior to mere selfless acts. If you were alive in the 90s, you're probably very familiar with the sitcom Friends. In one episode, the character Joey, uh, who's kind of a silly character, tells the character Phoebe, who's kind of like a hippie-type character, that there is no selfless good deed. He argues that every deed in some way comes from a selfish place, and at the very least, a deed makes you feel good and is therefore somewhat selfish. Phoebe tries to come up with examples of purely selfless good deeds and is disappointed when she can't, but I find that uplifting. True selflessness is a zero-sum game. I must lose something for you to gain something. But when we recognize that the source of virtue is something more than mere selflessness, you realize that good acts are not a zero-sum game. They're additive. Rational self-interest is the rising tide that lifts all boats. And you may be thinking, what of bad actors? What about evil, selfish people acting for their own gain? I would argue that in a moral, rational world where we hold one another accountable to our actions, evil doesn't pay off. An evil, selfish act is merely a poorly considered short-term view of the world. True rational self-interest requires an actor to take a universal, long-term view of their actions and all of the cascading effects. Someone who forsakes, say, love, time, passion, companionship for something like, say, money isn't acting out of selfishness. They may think they are, but they're not. They're acting out of mere stupidity. Then again, I may be wrong. But that ability to test ideas, learn, and grow is what makes this country great. So be honest, allow yourself to be wrong sometimes, and be fearless in the exercise of your rights. Thanks for listening. If you want to help out or get involved in the growth of this podcast, you can spread the word to friends, family, whoever. Help me grow this podcast so I can spend a little bit more time on it. You can also help out and get involved by following on social media, on Instagram, at tbh underscore i may be wrong and of course subscribe on whatever platform you're listening with and you can reach me directly at to be honest i may be wrong at gmail.com thanks for listening and i'll see you next time